Hi guys, welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast, the podcast where the PR person, me, Lisa Camuso Miller, interviews reporters about how it is they got into journalism and what it is they're covering in the wide world of media affairs. It's a great opportunity for me to have a conversation and for you to learn more about the reporters that you're looking to pitch. It's also an opportunity for me to partnership with a great publication and opportunity for PR Daily to get the word out about the wonderful things they do in the world of communications, offering us training, offering us networking opportunities, and offering us some tremendous content to help us learn more about how to be better in communications. In fact, coming up November 17th, the Future of Communications Conference will be happening virtually. I'd love for you to join us there. In fact, if you use the promo code Friday Reporter, you can get $100 off for your participation. I can't wait to see you there. Well, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. This episode is, it's going to be fun. So hang on, because not only do I have one, but I have two very talented journalists with me, one who is still in the journalism space and another who is moved on to the PR side of our business. But Brendan Daly and Matthew Daly, twins and also friends here from Washington, D.C., are with me today. Gentlemen, thank you for being with me. Well, thanks for having us. So, Brendan, tell me. How it is that a family of eight, that four, end up in journalism? Well, really, it's, it's a family affair because it started with our, our grandfather, John J. Daly. He was a reporter first at uh, the New Britain Herald in uh, 1916 and then later came down here to Washington and worked for the Washington Post where he was the theater critic. And in fact, he was at the Knickerbocker Theater when there was so much snow on the roof in January of 1922 that the roof collapsed and okay. a number of people were killed. And he went from being just the, the theater critic to spot news reporter and wrote an incredibly dramatic lead about the sound was like the crack of doom. Wow. And he just really wrote a dramatic piece about it. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife was a uh, newspaper columnist for the Catholic Standard for many years, our grandmother. Our father was a photographer for the Post. Uh, so it kind of just felt natural for us to go into it. Mm-hmm. Older brother Sean was a television reporter for many years, mostly in Rhode Island for the last 30 years. And he retired a few years ago. And then our younger brother, Corbett, was at Reuters and CBS and a number of other uh, outlets. And then now he left the business entirely. He's actually doing uh, real estate. Mm-hmm. But, but Matt uh, stayed with us the whole time. And I was a reporter for about um, nine years or so, first the first three years in Connecticut right after co- out of college. And then I worked for the Patriot Ledger up in Quincy, Mass., which was a great paper back in the late 80s and early 90s when I was there. Mm-hmm. And a number of those folks have gone on to work at the Times and the Post and really great papers. And unfortunately, like so many other local newspapers around the country, it just it got bought up by you know a, a firm that was more interested in making money and just mm-hmm. cut all the staff, and it's a shell of its former self. Oh, I hate, I know, and we hear it all the time, and it's just um, well, it's unfortunate because I don't think that people in those communities are getting highest the highest level of of news that they're looking for. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation. But Matt, tell me a little bit about you. So Brendan is now in the private sector. Um, doing p- public relations and public affairs, but you're still in this, you're still in this space. You're working for the Associated yeah. Press. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I work for the AP and the Washington Bureau. I cover climate and uh, the environment, uh, which is quite a busy beat these days. You bet. The, uh, a lot of, lot of uh, executive actions and legislation that are happening, both with the infrastructure bill and also with the Biden administration. But just to go back in time a little bit, I started also at the Post. I was an editorial assistant there. And then after several years of that, I went down to the Charlotte Observer, 
and worked in uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, covered uh, Jim Baker and uh, Tammy Faye, among other people, uh, down at PTL. That was quite a, an experience as well. Mm-hmm. And then I, I spent more than a decade at the Hartford Current. Uh, speaking of newspapers that have had some issues in terms of uh, the ownership, they've lost a lot of their reporters. There's been you know media stories about the fact that with, when I was there in the 90s, we had almost 400 people. And now they're down to about 36 reporters. So things have changed. And then I've been since 2000, I've been at the Associated Press, first in Connecticut, and then and since 2002 here in D.C. And luckily, we have actually been expanding our operations. Um, so that's been very good. And we've also been able to find alternate sources of revenue instead of just newspapers and radio TV stations. We've also have Google and AOL and, and a lot of other places where we've, we've able, been able to work with partnerships. And so our stories, you know, we like to say we're the oldest and the largest news gathering organization in the world, mm-hmm. and we're all over the place. And if, if you read it in the newspaper, you heard it on the air, the chances are the AP uh, was involved in it. And I love that because I do think that, that the AP has really become this tremendous source for those outlets that are, you know, back in those small towns in America that, that maybe don't have access to those resources anymore. They don't have those papers that have um, have as many journalists as they once had. And so it's that great content that you guys are offering every day that really does sort of fill in that gap and makes a tremendous difference. Um, but I have to ask because so Brendan and I worked on Capitol Hill together at the time he worked for one party and I worked for another party. Um, but so he and I were up there sort of doing communications at the same time sort of getting that experience. Have you ever had an ex- a time when uh, Brendan have you ever had to pitch your brother? I mean, has that ever happened? Does that does that happen at all? Or do you say like, I probably ought not to? Yeah, like the latter. We uh, we kind of agreed that we really shouldn't be involved uh, on a professional level. But there are times where, you know, when I was working as a, at a PR firm, after I used to work for Speaker Pelosi, and then from from there to work at Ogilvy a PR firm, mm-hmm. and there were folks who wanted to pitch uh, Matt on various topics that they were, uh, you know, interested in. I and so I would give him give them his contact info, but I wouldn't pitch him directly just because I feel like I want to avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and that's why I asked, because I'm sure there are people that, that maybe don't understand how the business works that would say, Oh, this is, you know, it's all made in the shade. Things are happening behind the scenes. That is not the way it works. And in fact, most people have sort of a, a code, like it sounds like you guys do where you say, you know, you're better off, you're better off not doing that. Uh, let's, let's approach it in a smart professional way. Right. And, and truthfully, go ahead, Matthew. I think that most of the people that we deal with have recognized that. I know that, you know, when I was covering Congress in, in the 2000s and Brendan was working for the Speaker, I, I covered Republicans as well as Democrats. Mm-hmm. Republicans certainly knew who my brother was, but they also knew that my stories were fair and that I treated them fairly. And they, there was never a single problem with any anybody from either party. Right. And, you know. I don't ever remember that being ever anything that was on my radar at all at that time. But I ask because I think that there's a curiosity about how that might come together and how that might work for you all. Um, Matthew, so you covered Capitol Hill at that time, but your beat now has adjusted and changed. Uh, But do you still, you must still cover the Hill in some detail because that issue. Oh, yeah, no, I cover the Hill quite a bit because of anything related to climate or energy or the environment. It's quite a, a broad sweep, and so I cover obviously the uh, Senate Energy Committee and the House Natural Resources and, and, and Energy and Commerce, a whole bunch of committees, and and you know on the floor as well. And so that's something that I really like doing. I covered the, the Hill full time for about seven years, and so this is all part of the same similar beat. And I think just going back to the other issue though, in terms of 
your professionalism. You just have to be known for what you're doing mm -hmm. and, you know, what your own standards, people who are working with you know your standards and they know that they can get a fair shake and they always do. Of course. Right. And, and we didn't ever try to, this is Brandon again, yeah. we, we didn't want to cross lines because at the end of the day, you know, the, <laughs> our brothers are more important to us than any job. So we're not right. going to risk our relationship with each other or the job, frankly, to get that, you know, to cross, get crosswise on that. I will say that we're people who mix us up because we look alike. And, you know, famously, <laughs> uh, Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who's a really funny guy, to say to Matthew, are you the, the evil twin? Because he was on the press side. <laughs> and uh, and even, even now, like if, if Matthew's on the Hill and he'll run into a former Pelosi colleague, um, they'll sometimes say to him, are you you or your brother? And they say that to me when I see them as well. So it, even after all these years. I was going to say, you guys are adult humans and this is still happening. It must, I guess it's a, it's a side, it's one of those side things that you just have to deal with if you look like another human, like, like you guys do. Yeah, people yeah, get embarrassed all the time. <laughs> so, Brendan, tell me a little bit, though, because you have a journalism background, uh, but you work now in the public affairs space. How do you think that having that level of experience and understanding of how uh, the journalism space works? How do you think that that does, does it support what you do today? Or do you think you're better at what, what you're doing because you kind of have a sense of how the sausage gets made? Tell me a little bit about that, if you will. Well, yeah, I, I definitely think it's a big advantage because I know what reporters are looking for you know mm -hmm. right now i'm at corporation of public broadcast and we were we gave some grants to uh, three different stations uh in minneapolis and in milwaukee and in jackson mississippi to try to change some of their formatting to urban alternative programming to reach a younger more diverse audience mm -hmm. and because i had the previous uh in a previous job had worked with uh, some folks from billboard i was able to connect with them i had a relationship with them a but B, I knew what they're looking for. This is the kind of trend story that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And I gave him, like, here's a couple of trends of why Urban Alternative actually is growing, and here's some interesting stats you can use. And by the way, here are some really good people you can interview. And in bullet form, it was very short, to the point, and right away they loved it. And uh, so we were happy. The story came out. They, you know, they, they, they did a really good independent story. But that's true on so many levels, you know, with other stories over the years where I have a sense of what reporters want and what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. and, and Matthew can tell you in chapter and verse some of the terrible pitches that he gets, how long-winded and boring they are. Yeah. And just after the fact, they're not timely, they're just irrelevant. And so you want to be timely and to the point and try to actually serve as a, a value to the reporter rather than just a nuisance that they don't want to open your email. No, and I'm glad you bring that up because, Matthew, I was going to just ask you, I, typically when I'm working on something for a client, what I try to do is I try to figure out what are the elements that I have that are going to be useful and what other elements do I need in order to make the pitch land. Um, and sometimes I will call my, my reporter colleagues, maybe as someone who's not even on the beat to say, I'm working on this and I'm, you know, these are kind of the elements that I have. If I were to come to you with the, this particular story that I'm hoping you would write, what other things do I need? Um, Tell me, Matthew, what, what are the best, the pitches that come to you that, you'll, that, that land with you that really sort of can be the ones that you follow up on and write on? What do those look like? Well, I think first of all is timely. Mm -hmm. They have to be on the news or ahead of the news or anticipating the news and not, you know, from three days ago. Right. Um, I'm still surprised even now in 2021, I get statements on something that, you know, either Congress passed or that Biden did. And the next day, I get statements from members of Congress saying, here's so-and-so's comment on it. Well, great. We've already written that story. Mm -hmm. We've already moved on. 
So that is sort of shocking to me how often that happens and how that that's such a basic thing. But in terms of like an outside group, I want to get ahead of a story. So you try to anticipate where it's going to be going. Well, but this happened last month or last week. So where's it going to go next? Mm-hmm. And so trying to look ahead because we're always trying to look ahead and move forward. We never kind of stay with the same story. We try to keep moving it forward and getting it to be, you know, not only the second day, but the third day, the fourth day. Yeah. And then sometimes with it's just an interesting idea or angle that can be an exclusive, they would give it to us first. We like to say at AP that, you know, we're a one-stop shopping because if you give it to us, it goes to all of the newspapers and all of the broadcast uh, stations and all of the uh, TV networks. Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised how many radio broadcasts and TV broadcasts that you hear, you know, I'm hearing my words, you know, read out loud by other people. Sure. And it's sort of still funny to me, you know, even now, just, you know, the other day we had a thing when Biden did something on uh, Bears Ears, which is a big national monument in Utah. Mm-hmm. And the exact wording of the statement came on NPR. The newscast was my story. Oh, that's great. Well, I mean, and it, it shows the reach that the AP has. It is not always super easy to, like you said, like to get those statements in a timely way. I'm sure that if we had, uh, Brendan probably has, I know that I have uh, suffered this when it comes to getting client and or principal approval on statements, boy, sometimes you just cannot get those guys to commit to what it is they want to say. And by the time it's out there, it's late. And unfortunately, your name is on the press release or on the statement that's going out the door. It is a frustrating process for sure. And I'm sure that it just clogs up your email and your, you know, sort of the incoming that's coming to you because the timing is wrong. And that makes a ton of sense. What do you think, um, Matthew, as you think about stories that are coming up or opportunities that are coming up, uh, the challenge, I think, with your particular beat is that, as, a, as unfortunate as it is, it has become political. I mean, the issue has become political, that one side completely denies that there's anything that's happening, and another side is committing to make adjustments. Is it is it frustrating to you to hear those same sort of messages coming from one side that this is, you know, anyway... Tell me a little bit about that challenge, if you will, because I, I, I think it can be a little frustrating to have <laughs> some of the politics involved. But I will say that in on the overall issue of climate, which I think there has been a little bit of a, a shift in terms of uh, talking points and just in, even in terms of just actual thinking about it. I know that, for instance, in Congress, there's a conservative caucus that wants to do there's a conservative climate caucus that wants to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they want to have different solutions than perhaps the Democrats have. But at least they're talking about That's it encouraging. in a similar way. Mm-hmm. I think. You know, there's also just in general, I think there's ways to talk about it where you can agree maybe that there is a problem and that the climate change is happening. But it's a question of what do you do about it and how far do you want to go? And I know that when Biden talks about it, he likes to talk about it in terms of jobs, because that's a way that kind of cuts across a lot of political lines. Absolutely. You know, maybe we can create new jobs. And, you know, the counter to that is maybe you're also going to cost jobs by some of these other policies. And I think it's on, incumbent on the administration and then advocates to say, here's how we actually are going to create jobs and try to make the story more of a positive story from their point of view in terms mm-hmm. of getting that message out. That's great to hear. That's so great to hear. Well, I also want to ask, Brendan, I'll let you take this one because it's, it's one that you've sort of pointed out to me. Not only are you guys doing great work on the journalism side and the public affairs side, Am I am I getting this right? You guys are the chief editors of the Daily Greeting, which is a uh, family publication 
that is done. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, we are. And uh, the slogan is the family that writes together fights together, <laughs> uh, which is all in, in, in tongue in cheek. The whole thing is tongue in cheek. That's what's fun about it. Mm-hmm. It really started in 1916 for my grandfather when he was a single man. And he just wanted to send, instead of a Christmas card, he did a funny kind of mock-up newspaper um, as a spoof of a, of a New Year's greeting. How much fun. And then he kept it up, and he then eventually got married, had, they had kids, and it got bigger and bigger. And um, my dad was the editor for a long, long time. And then when he passed away, uh, Matthew and I kind of took it over. We have other uh, siblings who get involved in it and mm-hmm. other relatives who help us write it. Um, and it's an annual project. I mean, it's, you know, our, our, their slogan is it's the only daily newspaper published annually. I love it. And it's, you know, it's a lot of work, but we try to make it look professional and it's got kind of a sepia tone to it. It's got really nice pictures and, mm-hmm. and, and usually topical, uh, you know, topics. So we have, uh, we'll make jokes about the, whatever's going on in politics that year. It was tough last year because of the pandemic, but we ended up having the main picture was uh, each of us like in a Zoom call, and they were individual photos oh, that were uh, designed like to be a Zoom call, and that basically saying that in a really tough year, we Zoomed uh, to connection, and we did have a lot of Zoom calls, and we, we're, we're, we're a very tight family. There's eight siblings, and most of us are now married with kids, so when we all get together, there's 28 of us, Wow. and we get together, you know, every other year, we go to the beach, and it's really a, it's really a blast, so... Um, it's a labor of love, but it is definitely labor, though. No, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. My dad's motto was, uh, it doesn't take much to attract the crowd. <laughs> and so uh, and there are many relatives involved. And so it, it's been fun to do. And we do get a lot of comments on it and just the history of it, that it's something that we're continuing that started more than a century ago. That's awesome. And it also does get back to the beginning of your question, though, which is that it's a family. Journalism is a family business. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, in my case and in Brendan's case, both of, both of our wives are, you know, journalists and former journalists. Where I met my wife, Meredith, is at the Hartford Current. And no in kidding. fact, her, she now works at NIH, and she does a lot of communications work for them. And she also uses her reporting experience to try to, pitch stories and she's able to use a lot of her experience and kind of guide her colleagues about what will and won't work as a story because uh, there's still, I think, a disconnect out there between what a PR person thinks is a story and what a reporter thinks is a story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's still kind of a bridge that may never be, you know, the gap may never be bridged, but it's definitely, there is a gap. For sure. And then even if you think it's a story, that's the other layer is that maybe your editor doesn't necessarily think it's something that's going to work for, for the coverage that's, you know, coming for the week or the, the month or whatever the, the planning process is. So it's definitely, there are a lot of layers to getting through, but having that foundation that it sounds like even Meredith has, and, and I know that both of you guys have, is just knowing and having that sense is, is fantastic. Right. And, that, and that's true on the client side, too. When I worked for a PR firm, mm-hmm. some of my clients really didn't understand, you know, what was the story. And, you know, they knew, and you mentioned Carl Hulse because Carl was on the show, and I worked a lot with Carl. Mm-hmm. We well, should get your friend Carl to write about this. And I'm like, I'm not pitching Carl with this story. It's not a story that not he wants one. to write. Mm-hmm. And so you have to manage the expectation. Like, no, that's a niche publication, like a trade publication, or there's other areas you can go. But you know, you have your, as we talked about earlier on the timeliness, it's my name on it. So I'm not going to pitch something that I don't think is a story, even if the client wants it. Right. And that becomes a, sometimes a challenging conversation with the client. Well, that's not really a story. So we've got to get the message out somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And the one thing, or you can try world, to figure out, 
some of this is Matthew. You can figure out what other venue might be better. I mean, I think that's half of the battle is figuring out the correct venue. Right. Yeah. And and, and, and in the digital world now, you know, you have your own blogs and you have your own, uh, you know, obviously your own social media where you can blast things out. So there are other ways to get the message out that doesn't have to go through the media. But still, even in 2021, if you get a story in the Post or the Times or the AP, that makes a much bigger difference than a smaller publication. Right. Oh, no question. But the but the filter to get through even now is even increasingly difficult because I think that that everything has changed the world. I mean, if, if you guys think about the time from when we all got started in this business to where we are today, it, it's a completely different landscape between the digital space, the, the undersizing of those local papers, the way that the world works in the online, there's so many different components. And as much as there are more opportunities to tell your story, it feels increasingly difficult to land those stories. So having that, you know, that thoughtful, attention to detail. Also, Brendan, I can't agree with you more. That is the most difficult conversation to have with a client to tell them that I know you think this is a big deal, but I'm telling you that that is not going to be a story that we're going to land. That is really hard. The difficult conversation is if you're a reporter who likes the PR person, you can say, hey, you know, I love you, but uh, this is not going to work for us. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes is not that easy to do. Right. Uh, And you have to, but we have to sort of be faithful to what our mission is and for me I, I you know do a specific beat and I don't do other beats right and so you sort of have to know what it is and I will say just uh this is not you know, I'm not trying to cast a spurs or anything but getting an email that's addressed to Michael or to some <laughs> other name that isn't my name mm-hmm. that's not so good that's a hard that's a hard no it's a hard no for me <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I mean, you know, if somebody addressed it to the wrong person, I, thanks, but you're in the, you're in the, the sin bin. Goodbye. You're garbage. Goodbye. Uh, yeah, so like, you're, I almost would rather you have, you know, no salutation than the wrong one. That is, and you're not the first reporter to bring that up too, because it, it is an automatic, it's a hard no. I mean, if you can't get my yeah, name. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's PR 101 <laughs> to not do that, but it happens. Right. And it's right. It's a, it's an easy mistake. Um, and, and I've talked in the past about how those lists get aggravated or excuse me, they also get aggravated, but they get aggregated in that, you know, there are these companies that generate lists for you and then you have to call through them. You have to sort of go through and look at the coverage first before you send a mass email. There's nothing worse than telling a client, yeah, we pitched 200 people. Well, guess what? (laughs) Either you're terrible at your job or you sent one sort of blanket email out to all of these folks in the hopes that someone would care. And that's, that's difficult too. So tell me, Matthew, if you will, is there a story that you are looking forward to write? Is there is there an issue that's popping up? Is there something that's because as a journalist, you're constantly keep you're constantly getting smarter about these various issues. Is there something you see around the corner that is a story that you're looking forward to to covering in the in the near future? Well, in the climate uh, change area, I just would like to have more solutions. You know, there's so many problems and we know what they are and they're they're obviously significant and you sort of have to try to in, in, in your mind and also I think in your coverage not be too uh, doomsday scenario because some mm-hmm. of the facts are pretty uh, sobering and yeah. so you want to be looking towards solutions but you don't want to sort of have false hope well this is you know somebody says this is a great idea but it's not really a great idea mm-hmm. so you want to have something that people can agree on I mean for me, on I just did a big story on, on water problems in Colorado, and just interesting to sort of see how different communities are trying to come up with different ways to ensure that they will have water 
going forward because if they don't, they're not going to be able to grow. They're not going to be able to prosper at all. Right. And it's a very existential threat that they face. And it's not like an academic study tells them this is a problem. This is an actual problem in the real world. And so just in general, you know, taking that sort of idea more locally, just want to get solutions if there are possible solutions out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think that it probably would be more encouraging to hear those solutions as you're covering um, the threat as it, as it's unfolding, that also there are some solutions and some ideas that are in place. Cause a lot of times you feel like you read these pieces and there aren't any, and that really is discouraging. Um, Brendan, right, you don't want people to feel like it's a hopeless situation correct. because then, you know, what are they going to do? And then they just kind of turn off or they throw up their and hands and say, I guess mm-hmm. COVID, I mean, I've covered a lot of COVID stories uh, before I started the climate feed and I just, you know, that's a, obviously a very brutal story, but there's also hope in the sense of a lot of vaccinations. There's a lot more than there were. The booster shot is working. There's, there's things that are happening that are good. And I think you sort of have to, uh, along with the reality of, of, of what's happened, you have to sort of also talk about what can be seen as a hopeful solution. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a fine line to walk because you don't want to just make stuff up and say, oh, this is going to be great because obviously a lot of these things aren't going to be great, but there are right. ways that you kind of within, within that you can kind of find some light. Sure. No doubt about it. Um, speaking of which solutions and, you know, legislative action, Brendan, you mentioned that you worked for the speaker when she was speaker uh, back when you and I were on the Hill, but now she's back in the, in that role and she is like working hard and fighting every day for, for solutions on a, on a lot of different issues. Is it, What's it like sitting on, on in the private sector after having served and worked uh, for for her? What's it What's that like? I mean, I know I look at some of these other members that I've worked for, but how is it um, for you being in the private sector, sort of watching them? Sort of, it's a totally different world from when we were on the Hill. It really is, and it's even gotten more partisan than when we were there. Mm-hmm. And you know, and at the time, if you had asked me that was possible, I would have said no. But it's certainly true. And also, she has a much narrow majority now. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was there for the big fight over the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. And it was a huge, long battle, you know, to pass and then even after it passed, as you know, for years and years. But, you know, she ended up losing 39 of her members on mm-hmm. the final vote. And this time she's got three that she can that she could lose. So what a narrow it's window. such a different environment. And, you know, I've gotten calls from a number of reporters because they, you know, I still know that a lot of them are the same reporters who covered her of course. Right back in the day. And yeah. they, you know, so they want to just, you know, what am I thinking? What am I hearing? And you know, my standard line is, well, never bet against Nancy Pelosi no. because you, she's just so good and so talented. And she is just a marvel who can really work at all sides of the caucus. And, you know, the Democratic Party is a big tent. It really is. You've got the AOCs of the world all the way to the problem service caucus for, you know, in the Senate it would be Joe Manchin and, and uh, Senator Sinema, but in the House it's John Scott Heimer and a bunch of other folks like that. So mm-hmm. uh, it's difficult to, to bridge that gap, but she has credibility with both because she is a progressive, A, and then B, the moderates know that she is their biggest champion in Congress because she needs them to retain the House majority. Mm-hmm. And you know, she knows and all of us know that it's going to be a very, very difficult battle next year for the Democrats to retain the House. It's historically right. the first year, first midterm of a new president, you know, the, the gains go the other way. When you add in redistricting, which the Republicans, you know, control a lot more uh, state legislatures than the Democrats, it's going to be a tough battle. But 
if the Democrats can get something done, I do think that that actually is something they can, they can campaign on. Mm-hmm. And it's been a long, ugly fight. And, and Matthew and I were talking about this the other night about, just at, you know, at, at dinner that it's unfortunate the way it's been tagged in the press as you know, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill rather than what's in it because there's climate change solutions in there. There's child care. Yeah. There's making the, the child care tax here permanent. There's so many positives that are in that bill, but the, the sort of shorthand is, oh, it's the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. And now that number is going to have to come down. And the, the, all the discussion is, you know, what is the new number going to be? And, and rather than what's actually the substance of the bill. And, right. And, you know, you can blame lots of folks on that. It's not just the press's fault. I think the, you know, the, the members of Congress and administration have to make that case. And they certainly have tried to make that case. I'm but sure they have. It's, it's a challenging environment to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a big fight. I mean, that's the thing that that fight is not made up. That's a real fight mm-hmm. over real issues and real disagreements. I mean, Senator Manchin has his constituency in West Virginia that he believes in and that he supports and that he is fighting for. And I think that that's kind of a, a difficult situation with everyone because of the, the narrow majority. So it's going to be a real battle. No question. Guys, we're getting towards the towards the end of our conversation, but I wanted to make sure that I asked uh, for a recommendation because that's how the podcast continues to grow. So, Brendan, I'll start with you. Who is it that you might recommend that I connect with for a future episode of the podcast? Well, there's so many great reporters who have really great stories, but one that uh, comes to mind is a, is a woman who worked with me at the Patriot Ledger uh, in the early 1990s, then with Matthew at the Hartford Current in the later 90s. And now she's at the Washington Post, who's been there for a long time, and she covers national security issues. Her name is Ellen Nakashima, and she's just terrific. I think she'd be a great guest. Awesome. And Matthew? Well, I was going to suggest a, a former colleague of mine at the AP, Andrew Taylor, who covered the budget for many years, both for AP and also before that for uh, CQ. And he really has uh, done a great job. And he, he actually has quite a story to tell because he has retired. Uh, in part because of uh, his concerns over January 6th and how that whole thing has just been a really difficult issue for so many reporters. I I was not on the Hill that day, but I was covering the Hill as part of before my beat change, Mm -hmm. which happened on Inauguration Day. I was a full-time Hill reporter, and I was covering that. And that has been uh, probably the most difficult story that we've covered in, in a really long time, perhaps since 9-11. Matthew, I have, a, yeah, I have a couple of minutes. If you, would you mind spending just a minute on January 6th from your vantage point? Yeah, well, I mean, I covered it uh, right from the beginning of it, and I was actually in the middle of covering Senator McConnell's speech, which was an eloquent speech about, you know, the integrity of the vote. And then the next thing you know, they're kind of, whisking everybody out of the room and we're going what's going on and we're mm-hmm. hearing all these things and it just was we went from kind of a tense situation which it certainly was in the beginning to just chaotic, and then it went beyond that to just nothing like we've ever seen before and then i had to cover the unfortunate you know death of officer sicknick who mm-hmm. uh you know that was just everything about that day was so horrific and it's really a place now that the Capitol has become a different place than it was before January 6th. Mm-hmm. It's just not as welcoming. It's more tense. It's angrier. Um, it's just a difficult place. And I think that that's something that I think if you didn't work there, you don't quite understand how bad it really was. And it really was something that uh, the people who covered it and who were there will never forget. And I think that that's something that we have to sort of remember that what really happened there. And it was not 
at all a uh, you know tourism gone bad. It was Mm-mm. it was an attack on the actual capital of this country. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm so glad you I'm so glad you brought it up because I know and Brendan I want your perspective too. But I. I couldn't move from the television on that day. Uh, obviously, I worked there for a previous speaker and uh, worked in the building and knew a lot of those tremendous officers that defend and, and keep us safe every day. And to have watched that happen, uh, I, I'll never be the same. I mean, that's the only way I can put it is that, and I was not in the building. I no longer worked in the building. I just know that it was... Uh, traumatic to watch. I mean, Brendan, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that as well. No, that's exactly right. I have the exact same reaction. You know, I worked there for a long time and spent many, many, many hours there Mm -hmm. uh, late into the night for so many years. And just to see a beautiful building, which is still one of the most beautiful buildings, I think, not just in the country, but in the world. Mm -hmm. And to see this attack on it was just so horrific to watch. And and then to know that my friends, a number of them who still work for the speaker, mm-hmm. were the, you know, basically the object of this, some of the attacks. And they're chanting, Nancy, where's Nancy? And they're pounding on the door of her office while the staff, many of them are in their 20s, and so these are young staffers hiding in the dark because they were afraid that, you know, these people are coming in to, to you know, who knows, to hurt Nancy. Cause harm. Maybe to kill mm-hmm. her. We don't know. I mean, their, their intent was not, uh, you know, was not just to say hello. It was really Mm-mm. malevolent. And the idea that somebody you can kind of whitewash that. It's like, no, we can't. That was a major, major attack on the capital in our country, and we need to find out what happened. And um, it's still traumatic for some of those staffers. They have PTSD. I've talked to them, and they they have they wake up of in the middle of the night. There's just a lot of trauma that's associated with that that has not been, you know, is not gone away. Of course. And, you know, so I, in a previous episode, I talked to Paul Kane, who shared his perspective. He was in the building that day. I also spoke to Tom Williams, who photographed a lot, a lot of the iconic photos, photos that we've seen from that day were taken by Tom. Um, these are people that will never, ever be able to erase that memory from their mind. And I can't imagine how they must feel. But I do know that, Having worked there, my um, my heart broke that day, and it, it I feel like it's just tremendously uh, disappointing that there would be anything but the country coming together to uh, to make sure that that never ever happens again. Um, anyone who says otherwise to me is their their credibility is just isn't there. Anyway, so enough on that. Um, I'm so so glad to have had both of you guys with me. What a fun time to check in and visit. Uh, guys, thanks. Thanks so much for being with me. Oh, we're thanks glad for having us. Yeah, thank we you love doing it. Sorry, we're, we're jumping at the same time here, but yeah, <laughs> thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a resource for communicators like myself and you who are listening in. Join me on November 17th for the Future of Communications Conference, a conference that will allow us opportunities to plan for our next year and talk about what it is we're going to look forward to for the future of communications. Find me there at prdaily.com and join me for the conference. And if you register, be sure to use Friday Reporter as a code to get $100 off. Thanks. Talk to you next week. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.